Welcome back everyone to another new episode of Grow Your Path to Wellness. Last episode, I solo hosted uh, another holistic wellness practitioner. We had Nikki Boggs um, on last week and I'm hoping that we can coordinate something for her to come back, but we covered the effects of trauma on the body. Nikki is trained in um, a lot of different areas of trauma-informed holistic wellness as far as um, massage, yoga, she is a Reiki practitioner. So she was a wealth of a lot of powerful information last episode. This week, we welcome Jessica Rabin. I was going to butcher it again, and you just told me how you pronounce it. Um, <laughs> Jessica, she's joining us, and we're, today we're going to talk about self-compassion and eating disorders. We'll get into how those things overlap, but thank you so much for being here, Jessica, and giving us some time on your Sunday morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and talk about this. All right, so it wouldn't be our podcast. (laughs) Yet another TikTok friend that we're bringing on here. So, um, Jessica, I think that's kind of how we met and connected and got you on here. So, thank you for the um, content that you deliver because it is so helpful for so many folks, including other mental health professionals. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself for people that aren't familiar with you? Um, Who are you? What do you do? What's your background? And why this topic today? Of course. So um, I am Jessica, like you said. So I am a licensed clinical psychologist in South Carolina. I work at a children's hospital and there I have two different roles. So a day and a half a week, I work outpatient in our adolescent medicine clinic. And there I primarily see like depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and work with LGBTQ plus youth. And then the other three and a half days a week, I actually work medical inpatient. So a lot of people think, psychologist hospital, it must be psychiatric inpatient. I work medical inpatient, really working with individuals with uh, chronic illness, new diagnosis of a chronic illness, physical traumas like car accidents, gunshot wounds, um, as well as eating disorders for medical stability. Um, Outside of that job, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a dog mom. I create content on social media, um, really with the goal of making mental health more accessible, making therapists more relatable. Um, and with regard to this topic, so self-compassion is something I started studying in graduate school. I wasn't super familiar with it, but the lab I worked in, um, one of the aspects it focused on was positive psychology. And I found self-compassion, fell in love with it. And I could talk about self-compassion all day long. And then when I started working with eating disorder patients, which was never my goal, but I'm the only psychologist in both my roles in the hospital. And then we've seen with the COVID pandemic, a significant increase in eating disorder symptomology. Um, I got extra training, started working with eating disorders and realized how much self-compassion can be beneficial for individuals in recovery from an eating disorder. Um, And we'll talk about this more, but there's actually quite a bit of literature on um, the relation between the two, namely that individuals with eating disorders tend to have lower self-compassion. So being able to cultivate that in recovery is actually very beneficial. I love the overlap that you have like in your your day-to-day work life, like the couple um, days a week that you're doing in those different areas. It's very interesting. And and I think it comes up uh, every single episode that we do with every single guest. Like we can't talk enough about how physical health is mental health. So 
as soon as you pointed out, like probably a lot of people have that misconception that, oh, if I'm a psychologist, I'm working in the hospital, that means I'm working in the, you know, crisis, mental health crisis stabilization um, or inpatient program. So yeah, we can't talk about this topic enough and saying, oh, things that even crises that happen to our physical health can activate so many things emotionally for us and just navigating the healthcare system right now is difficult. So thank you. for Yeah, no, I, I have had to perfect how I like introduce myself to families in the hospital. Cause a lot of times they're like, well, I'm here for a chronic illness or a car accident or something. Why is a psychologist coming in? And I give that whole spiel, like, you know, your physical health and mental health are intertwined. Also just like being in a hospital is going to negatively impact your mental health. You're stuck in bed. You can't, I mean, with restrictions have lightened up, but like, especially during the height of COVID, like people weren't allowed to leave their rooms because of like, so all of those things are so isolating. And um, for the most part, I would say like 99% of the time it's very well received and people are very grateful to have somebody in the hospital. Um, that is checking in on how they are doing emotionally because it is emotionally taxing. Absolutely. I remember my grandmother's, her last stroke, uh, she was in there and, you know, she's always, I want to go home. And I'm, and we're like, Grandma, like you just had a, a major stroke. And then she was in there for a few days and a psychologist came in and, and then she was talking to me. She was like, you know, I do. I notice how how I get really I get frustrated or I start to feel pretty down because, you know, she's seeing changes in her own functioning and, and things. So 100%, you said that. And I was like, I wanted to point that out because we talk about it so often. So um, I, if we jump in here, I think a lot of us, like probably a lot of the people listening to this have heard the term self-compassion or to show yourself compassion, but can you break down for them what exactly self-compassion is? Absolutely. So at, I guess, like the most basic level, self-compassion is just really being kind and compassionate to ourselves when we're suffering, when we feel inadequate, when we feel like a failure, just like we would extend compassion to a friend, a loved one, et cetera. Um, I work off of Kristen Neff's model. So she identifies three components of self-compassion. So the first one is self-kindness versus self-judgment. So this is responding to ourselves with kindness instead of self-criticism and both with our words and behaviors. So it's not just simply like talking kindly to yourself. It's also showing yourself compassionate behaviors. So I think of, I shared with you all before we started recording, I've been sick the past week and a half. So self-compassion in behavior would be like listening to my body and not pushing myself to go to work, despite the fact that I still I still did work most of the time, but like getting off early or not exercising because my body needs to rest. So that would be a behavior that can be self-compassionate in addition to words. Like we are harder on ourselves than we are anybody else. So instead of calling ourselves an idiot for making a mistake, we just identify like you make a mistake. Mistakes are part of being human. Um, the second component is common humanity versus isolation. And this is the recognition that suffering is really part of the human condition, that we're not alone in our experiences. So not everybody will go through the same exact experiences in life. And then two people can go through the same exact experience and have different outcomes or experience it in different ways. But we all suffer. We all have shortcomings. We all have failures. And a lot of times when we're feeling really 
depressed or hard on ourselves, down on ourselves, we tend to think we're the only ones experiencing that. I mean, you all obviously are mental health professionals. How many times have you worked with somebody with depression, for example? And it's like, nobody understands me. I'm the only one that feels this way. And the reality is that we all go through suffering. So that component is really recognizing that we're not alone. And then the third component of self-compassion is mindfulness versus over-identification. So being mindful and aware of our emotions without judgment, also without suppressing them, which we tend to do with uncomfortable emotions. We don't want to feel it, so we just ignore it. Or in contrast, over-identifying with them. So like, I'll go with, you know, depression again, like, I feel so bad. I'm never going to feel better. And you just kind of get stuck in that rumination cycle over and over and over again. Um, So yeah, that's a very brief overview, but somewhat comprehensive of self-compassion. I was wondering if you were going to reference Krista enough, because I know she's kind of the the standard in uh, self-compassion. And it's interesting as you were talking, um, I, my friend, she's been on our podcast before her name's Dee she's a school counselor but the other day we were talking amongst our friends and she was like you know and I'm looking on my wall because I as she said it I wrote it on a sticky note and put it up there she said people are giving us more grace than we're giving ourselves right and like and and you know we all use that intervention in therapy I'm sure like what would what would your friend say would they say that about you um so yeah I think it's just a constant good reminder even for us right like there's we all have emotions and the world doesn't teach us how to regulate or manage them or ride them out. Right. And so of course we stuff and we hide and kind of compartmentalize. So yeah, I appreciate you kind of sharing that, that perspective. And I will. link um I think it's just their one book right or does she have does she have more than she has one book two now? books now oh, two books now yeah. okay but selfcompassion.org is her website that has links to okay. all the books all the research awesome okay I will yeah, definitely I'm link that if huge Kristen F fan I always say like my biggest flex in graduate school was she I co-authored a paper with her so I was like <gasps> yeah so I like use it. yeah <laughs> It was like my highlight of my graduate career. You get to use that. You get to use that as a flex for sure. <laughs> I would literally use that for the rest of my life. I would be like, yeah, me and Kristen Neff, best buds. <laughs> okay. So now we have kind of a base understanding of what self-compassion is. Um, now on the other side of that, well, not on the other side, but the other part of this topic is eating disorders. So um, just kind of a good overview. What are eating disorders and what are common misconceptions about an eating disorder? I love the question about misconceptions because, and I'm, I'll, I guess I'll start there, but then kind of go briefly through different eating disorders. So a lot of people think an eating disorder is that stereotypical, very like underweight, malnourished, typically white femme presenting individual. Um, and yes, that is one type of eating disorder. So that characteristic is typically what we think of anorexia. So when we think of traditional anorexia, it is restriction of food intake. Um, We tend to see individuals that are underweight. Although there is a subcategory of atypical anorexia, I hate that term because it's really fat phobic. Basically you meet all the criteria except you're underweight. So we see like fear of gaining weight, fear of eating, um, restriction of food intake, energy intake, um, 
all that kind of stuff. That's a very brief overview. Another restrictive eating disorder that we see is bulimia. So that's where you will see the restrictive behaviors, but then you might also see um, binging. So eating large quantities of food um, in a short period of time and then compensatory behaviors. So purging behaviors, a lot of people, and I guess I should have done like a trigger warning before talking about this, but um, a lot of people think of purging as only self-induced vomiting. Um, and I guess this kind of goes into the misconception, but that could also just be over-exercising. So you eat and then you go to the gym to exercise off what you ate, laxative use, enemas, diuretics, those type of things. Then we also have other eating disorders such as binge eating disorder, which is actually the most common eating disorder. Um, and binge eating disorder, we see that binge eating without the compensatory behaviors that we see with bulimia. Um, I should have also identified in anorexia, you can see purging behaviors, but you typically don't see the binging component of it. So I guess a misconception about binge eating disorder is that all individuals who binge eat are in larger bodies. Yes, we see a greater proportion of individuals with binge eating disorder in larger bodies, um, but not all individuals with binge eating disorder or in larger bodies. And another misconception is that anorexia is the most common eating disorder, but really it's binge eating disorder. We also have eating disorders like ARFID, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And this is a newer diagnosis in the DSM-5, which is weird to say now because the DSM-5 came out almost a decade ago at this point. But, um, and that's where we see the restriction of food intake, but it's not due to like body image that we see with anorexia and bulimia. Um, a lot of times it may be due to like sensory issues with food or some type of traumatic experience. So I've, when I've worked with individuals with ARFID, um, some have had like a choking experience. And so then they're scared to eat food. So they restrict their food to only say like soft foods because they choked on chicken, for example. Um, so textures, um, some type of traumatic experience, a lot of times we might see ARFID related to anxiety. So maybe a person, you know, ate something and then got really sick or had some GI issues and couldn't eat. And so then anxiety is playing a role in their desire to eat. Um, another eating disorder that we see a lot personally um, and is becoming more common but isn't actually in the DSM is orthorexia. So this is that like obsession with healthy eating or quote unquote clean eating, which doesn't exist because the opposite of clean is dirty and but I won't get into that. Um, so this is like the individuals that, you know, they might be eating quote unquote enough to sustain their body, but it's all lean meats, vegetables, um, this really acute obsession with, you know, counting macros or, you know, they can't go out to dinner with friends without bringing their food because they don't know if something would be considered healthy enough. They may be obsessed with like reading labels or comment on what other people are eating. So that's a very brief overview of eating disorders. Um, other misconceptions that I already haven't touched on, I think, a big one is that you can tell if somebody has an eating disorder by looking at them. So not true on either end. Like if somebody is underweight appearing, it does not mean that they have an eating disorder. And if somebody is in a larger body, it also doesn't mean they have an eating disorder. I kind of touched on this with um, the atypical anorexia, but like you can be in a larger body and still have a restrictive eating disorder, which a lot of people 
don't see. And unfortunately, since I work in like a medical healthcare system, we see those individuals often being missed because they're initially praised for weight loss. Oh, like you're doing great. And then you look at their growth curve and I know like people just listening can't see this, but it's like up, up, up. And then like a dramatic drop down yet their BMI, which I hate is still within the normal range. Um, uh, some other misconceptions, like it, it's all about food. It's not, <laughs> um, like, yes, with, you know, anorexia and bulimia, particularly orthorexia, like there is that like fear of food, but usually it's due to the, what the consequence of that is, whether it's weight gain, um, quote unquote, getting fat, but a lot of times it's about control or it's, you know, one of my favorite questions to ask my patients is, you know, what are you truly seeking? Because a lot of times it's not weight loss. It's what they think weight loss would bring. If we're talking about restrictive eating disorders, they're seeking self-confidence, they're seeking happiness, they're seeking control. And there's not been many studies um, done on eating disorders in the pandemic. I think I've only seen one about the increase, but from my interactions, obviously this is not official research. I've seen a lot of individuals say like everything in my life was out of control and like food and exercise were one thing I could control. Um, I'm sure there's plenty more misconceptions, but I'll pause there. Yeah. I was going to say like, you've said the last point. I don't know why my brain wants to reiterate it, but as you were going through those different types, the, the, misconceptions that I don't, I don't specialize in this treatment, but I love that you brought up the one where people are fearful of taking in food. It's like not only about weight, eating disorders don't only mean I have a fear of gaining weight. They can be so many other things, you know, like fear of harm if I choke on a specific type of food again, or, and I do, I think people have these boxes because we only know what we know and we're three mental health professionals here right now, but there's eating disorders are tied to so many other things besides a fear of getting fat. Mental health in general. Yes. (laughs) I mean, we know the research has proven for decades now, hundreds of years that there's a stress disease connection. Like we can't ignore that stress is a factor in these things. Jessica, we didn't have this in our bullets, but um, because we are who we are and I think you are who you are, I wanted to ask, I thought this might be a good point in the misconceptions. Um, what are some, maybe not misconceptions, but other areas of consideration for diverse populations? You said you work with LGBTQ kids, um, any cultural components that you can kind of touch on here? Yeah. So one thing I've seen recently, so thank you for asking this, is a lot of disordered eating in trans and non-binary individuals. And I distinguish disorder eating from eating disorders, not because it's not as serious, but just because we work off the DSM if they don't meet full criteria for um, an eating disorder. But um, I have seen a lot like maybe restrictive in uh, in food intake or only eating certain foods or body image concerns, specifically in trans and non-binary youth, which is more so related to gender dysphoria, but on the surface can appear as an eating disorder or disordered eating. And I have seen both be comorbid as well. I've, I've definitely seen individuals um, that 
go on to develop full-blown eating disorders. So I think that is, especially for individuals working with like LGBTQ plus youth and adults. I don't work with, ad- I have a couple adults, but like the oldest I see or can see is usually like 2022. Um, I think that's something to take into consideration or assess for, um, especially within that gender dysphoria. Um, with regard to other like cultural concerns, something that came up recently. So like our protocol um, in the hospital, we have like certain meal plans that we set out for these individuals. And like a lot of people think of, you know, oh, eating disorders, like they only eat, especially restrictive, like fruits and vegetables. But we might see particularly I'm thinking of a patient I had recently, like a Hispanic culture. So they eat a lot of like carbs and rice and beans. And you can still be eating those foods and meet criteria for an eating because those are still a comfort food. So they might be restricting the amounts of them. So it's not also going back to something that um, Kelsey said about, it's not just like fear of the food. It's not like, oh, I'm only not going to eat like carbs and sugar. It might be an overall like restriction of intake. So the food alone is something to um, consider. And then more broadly, like on families, it's I think it's important for anybody who has a suspicion of an eating disorder to really look at like family dynamics, family food beliefs. And this doesn't have to be necessarily across different cultures, but like what type of food rules were individuals taught? Like was food a really, you know, in some cultures, like food is the heart of every family gathering. And what were the messages about food versus, you know, are there uh, families that, you know, mom was always on a diet. And I know I'm being very gendered in that, but that's what I see much more frequently. Or I see a lot of times like dad's like a gym buff and works with a personal trainer. And those are all like things that I think need to be considered because it's very rare. I've very rarely seen any individual with an eating disorder that has not had some type of family history of disordered eating. It might have not been a full-blown eating disorder, but like when you start breaking down, like, you know, I was told I had to clear my plate as a child before I got dessert. That was, I was told that too. It's very like culturally appropriate in many ways or like normalized, I guess not appropriate, but that's saying like, you don't deserve a sweet until you eat fruits and vegetables. And what we know from that is you're actually going to end up eating more past the point of satisfaction. Um, so I don't know if that was like fully on, but that was something that came up when you asked that and, you know, considering family. No, that's amazing. That brought up so many other things for me. And I know I'm not going to get rambly, but I did, um, I spent a lot of time working with bridges out of poverty not sure if you're familiar with that initiative but a lot of it was teaching like different class rules and so it was like food I always remember the food one because it's so I don't know just easily to translate so like in poverty food is have you had enough right like did you get enough of it it's about how much you can have and it's like a connecting and a community thing where middle class is like did it taste good and then upper class is about the presentation of it so like did it look pretty on the plate right um so that came to mind and then when you talked about um and the whole time we've been talking about it, I've been thinking about like who I always say to my clients whose voice is that 
where is that message coming from? Do you really feel that way or have you internalized that? So like when you said with the families, like you have to eat everything on your plate or you have to at least take a bite of it or, and me, I think it almost conditioned me to like always want a sweet after my meal was over. Cause now I'm always looking for a sweet afterward. And it was because I couldn't have it until I finished my meal. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's definitely important that we look at those family factors, even like um, I've had you know, adoptees that, or foster children, right? Like they didn't have access to food. So then now they hoard food or, you know, they overindulge on sweets because they were never allowed to have them, you know, those kind of things. So yeah, thank you for um, running with my interjected question there that we didn't plan for. <laughs> I have multiple thoughts, but like Amanda said, I won't go all over the place with that. But I think about my area. I live in a very rural, um, poor area in, in Ohio. And I, I look back and I'm like, holy cow, like the things that you're told or, you know, not just like, if you don't eat everything on your plate, but you go to the grocery store and you look at certain foods and they're, they are like unrealistic. Like I, we could never buy and, and have that to eat because poverty and like, just as those individuals grow up even if we find people getting out of poverty you still notice those patterns those very restricted um patterns and views of just different types of food even going out to a restaurant I'll catch my own myself be like oh my gosh like salmon it's probably and you know like I don't live in poverty anymore but I still catch all of these things like you bring all those up and I'm like holy cow uh, and I work a lot with LGBTQ um, youth and adults and things and that's something I was mindful of but probably not I probably I'm gonna incorporate more questions as far as when I start asking about appetite and because I always ask pronouns all of the things first and I'll probably add some more direct questions about the body dysmorphia and eating now so thank you for that Okay, my brain's going to continue going all over the place, but uh, we only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to um, get to your last bullet point just about how self-compassion gets intertwined with eating disorder treatment. Absolutely. So first of all, there is actually a good amount of research on the two. So um, like I said at the very beginning, like we find that there's a lot of lower self-compassion with um, individuals with eating disorders. So we see lower levels of self-compassion with higher levels of body dissatisfaction um, associated with like bulimic symptomology, binge eating, drive for thinness, dietary restraint. In contrast, we see higher self-compassion related to things like body acceptance, appreciation, um, lower preoccupation with like food, um, body dissatisfaction, things like that. So with regard to self-compassion and eating disorder treatment, there is actually, so compassion focused therapy is a therapy modality and there has been an adaptation for eating disorders, which really, and I'm not trained in it. I just kind of, I do more CBT for eating disorders and then bring in self-compassion. Um, but really CBT or CFTE, so compassion focused therapy for eating disorders really helps, um, the individual understand and accept their body as it is and the importance for nutrition activity rest. Um, but with regard to like treatment, a lot of self-compassion, compassion exercises, I always say are very like easy in theory. They're hard to implement, but like, it's not like this really 
big complicated thing. So I know Amanda, you brought up at the beginning, like, or I guess not the very beginning, but you know, we in therapy, a lot of times, like, how would you respond to a friend or what would you say to a friend? So that is a self-compassion exercise. Neff talks about that all the time. You know, I personally, granted, I work with kids so and teens, so this doesn't work all the time. But if I'm working with adults, I prefer to ask, like, how would you respond to your child? Or what would you say to your child? Because depending on the dynamics of the friendship, you might be mean to your friend or you might be more blunt, but like your child or like I might ask, you know, what would you want to tell your younger self? Um, So that can be an exercise self-compassion letters are huge across any type of treatment. Um, but particularly with eating disorder treatment, like writing yourself a letter, I think of a lot of times, like after like binging or purging, because there's a lot of guilt and shame associated with that. And so instead of, you know, responding critical to yourself, really like writing yourself a letter or even talking to yourself and, you know, um, about how, you know, you were struggling and you used the binge or the purging to cope with that. It doesn't mean that you are a failure um, as a person. It was, you know, X, Y, or Z needs weren't met. It was your go-to coping skill. How can you do different um, in the future? So there's a lot of ways that we can do self-compassion work. Um, A big thing, the self-kindness versus self-criticism that I do with my patients is distinguishing the eating disorder voice from you. Um, And because a lot of times we think we, I'm talking like if I was an eating disorder patient, like I am my eating disorder. But in reality, like if you start separating the two, it's easier to talk back. So the eating disorder voice, I encourage my clients, you can name it. Um, You can call it like whatever you want, something evil, or just call it like ED voice. And then what does Jessica say and respond to that? Um, With going back to kind of like the behaviors, you know, one of my favorite questions to ask my clients is like, what do you need right now? And then give it to yourself if it's like within reach. Like, you know, if you're really having a bad body image day, for example, for eating disorder patients, and you're like, I just need to you know, go outside for a walk to get my mind off this. So I'm not focusing on that. Okay, go and do that. That would be the more behavioral component of self-kindness. You know, if you find yourself looking in the mirror, body checking a lot, remove yourself from mirrors, do an activity you enjoy to get your mind off of it. Distraction is a huge component. Um, One of our ultimate goals with a lot of eating disorder recovery at the end is more mindful eating and intuitive eating and self-compassion aligns with that so much. And there's research to show that more self-compassionate people are more intuitive in their eating. So listening to your body and saying, you know, what do I actually want to eat right now? No, my body's really craving that cookie. I'm allowed to eat that cookie without feeling guilt or shame. Going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, like with the, you have to eat everything on your plate before you can have dessert. Um, Like we know that if you restrict yourself from the foods you want, you're more likely to eat more of them than you're more likely to have that shame guilt cycle. Um, yeah, I know we're almost out of time, but those are just like some of the first ideas that um, came to mind and really just like recognizing you're not alone in your struggles. Like so many people struggle with, even if it's not full, a full-blown eating disorder, but body image, shame and guilt around food, things like that. Um, yeah. Recognizing that you're not the only one suffering. 
I love it. It's always a good reminder because even professionals can get into that headspace. And I just, I love the reminder you gave about, um, like we were talking how like the depression and the negative thoughts and that can kind of just spiral and spiral until now you've snowballed and you're in this dark place and you don't know how you got there. And my like, um, my uh, description of that for people or like uh, analogy for people is like, if your best friend or your child or your spouse was going to run a marathon, right? And you're on the sidelines and you're like, you suck. You didn't even buy the right shoes. You're never going to make it, right? Like that's not going to help us. So even if that person falls down, it's not helpful to say, see, you fell down, you're not going to make it. So when we make our slip ups, when we have, you know, relapses or lapses, whatever we call them, it doesn't help us to be hard on ourselves, I think is kind of what you're getting at. And that's a perfect reminder. Um, I appreciate what you said about uh, knowing we're not alone. Other than that, was there any other last minute thoughts or mantras or positive statements that you share that you'd like to leave us with? And then where can our people find you? Um, yeah, no, thank you so much. There's so much more um, I could probably say, um, but like we all go through struggles and this is more towards like my helping professionals or even just people that consider themselves a helper. Like my go-to mantra is helpers need help too. So it's okay to ask for help and reach out if you're struggling, even if you're the person that like everybody sees as like strong and you help everybody else. Um, because yeah, life has been hard for all of us, but especially the past couple of years. So whatever you're going through, no, you aren't alone. Um, with regard to where people can connect with me, um, Instagram and TikTok are my two main platforms. So at Jessica Lee PhD, Lee is L-E-I-G-H. I also have my own podcast called Psych Talk. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get um, podcasts. And then obviously like on my Instagram and TikTok, I have a beacons link that links to all my other random stuff that I never remember to plug so you can go there perfect I'm gonna go I'm gonna go find it now okay. perfect I will link it all in the show notes as well so thank you we're so appreciative to have you be here and as always you are welcome back anytime if you have another topic you want to chat about and share that with the world we'd love to have you back so thank you for being here well thank you all for having me uh, so as we wrap up here, thank you again for everyone listening. Make sure you turn on your notifications so that you get reminders of every uh, new episode. They're about every two weeks on Sundays now. Uh, next week, I am super excited. We have Dr. Julie Pyle, who is my acupuncturist. She's also a chiropractor and she does gua sha. She's very holistic. Um, and she will be coming to talk about acupuncture and mental health and how that can support you. So thank you everyone for listening and we will see you next time.